Well, I'm eager to dive into that story with you guys tonight. So if you would uh, turn to page 12 in your packets, that's where we're going to camp out as we begin our journey through that story. But before we do that, as you're opening up, uh, there's something else that you should know about me beyond Kayla's introduction. When I was eight years old, I burned my house down. Yes, you can laugh about that. I am the reason that you heard as a kid, don't play with matches. (laughs) Now, technically, uh, I I didn't burn it all the way to the ground, but the entire second floor was ruined because of the flames, and the entire first floor was ruined because of the water damage from the fire company. And our entire family had to live in a trailer in our backyard for seven months until they could restore our home. Now, it's kind of a running joke nowadays with family and friends. Clint burned his house down. (laughs) And we are able to laugh about it now. And and honestly, my family did an amazing job to never, ever make me feel guilty for the terrible and foolish mistake that I made. However, the pain that I caused my family that day stuck with me. Uh, there are still memories from that day that are imprinted into my mind. Watching my dad run into the burning house to put out the flames that I started. Watching my mom weep as smoke poured out of her home. That heartache held me for a really long time, so much so that uh, 10 years later, For a writing assignment in English class in high school, I wrote about the fire, and I still have the paper. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it. (laughs) I'll spare you of the terrible grammar mistakes and the lame fire puns that I made throughout, but (laughs) I just wanted to share with you the last sentence that I wrote. I still can't forgive myself for what I've done, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to. You see, I internalized the pain that I caused my family, and it was still sticking with me 10 years later. I held on to that heartache. As we start this weekend, I want to ask you a question. What heartache are you holding on to right now? Now, I know that there is a lot of excitement for this weekend. A lot of you guys showed up ecstatic and pumped, thrilled to be here either for the first time or to return. Uh, Maybe some of you aren't quite excited. It's more uh, you're feeling a little stressy right now. Uh, Large crowds might make you nervous, and that's okay. But uh, in the mix of all of the excitement and the nerves that came through those doors, I imagine that many of you also walked in here your souls burdened from living in a broken world. What heartache do you hold on to right now? Maybe it's something that you've done. Mistakes that still haunt you or sins that still entangle you. Maybe it's something that's been done to you. Someone who has betrayed your trust or dishonored your dignity. Maybe it's something you've lost or someone who's no longer here. 
Uh, or maybe uh, it's uh, your ongoing struggles with depression, anxiety, loneliness, worry, or fear. It could be something that occurred years ago, something that happened just this week, or something that seems to uh, never go away. Or maybe uh, you're carrying the heartache of someone else today. You're walking in here carrying the burdens of struggling family members and friends. What heartache are you holding on to? Or, or perhaps uh, you're not holding on to heartache right now. Life is good. You're living your best life. College is sweet. But you do know that heartache will come one day. Whatever burdens you carry, it is normal and natural uh, to have this question rise up in our hearts. Where is God in all of this? Does he even care? What is he doing? Do you ever feel that way? Well, as we start our journey through the book of Ruth tonight, we're going to hear from people in this story who struggled in a, in a similar way that we all do. Though it takes place in a, in a different time, a different place, a very different culture, uh, the people in this story encountered the same realities that you and I face today. Stress, loss, grief, sorrow. And they wrestled with the same questions that we ask about God in suffering. But what we're going to see tonight and through the weekend is that God did not stay far away. He sustains these people in their suffering. And the same promise offered to them is extended to you. And so what we're going to see tonight in chapter one and throughout this entire weekend is when heartache comes, the Lord comes close. And he offers you hope that will outlast any heartache. So join with me as we read Ruth chapter 1. And let's follow the twists and turns of the first part of the story to see the hope that can come out of a heartache. Starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray as we dive into this. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts to see uh, how you call us to engage and express our heartache, but then how that allows us to find hope in you. In your son's name we pray, amen. So I wanted to, to give you just a quick uh, oversight of, of Ruth. There's four main characters in the book of Ruth. Uh, there's Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, and Obed. If you memorize those names right now, congratulations, but you will by the end of the, the weekend. And so each of our four main sessions, we're going to focus on one of those characters. And tonight, our focus is on Naomi. And as we look at Naomi, we're going to see two things, cries of heartache and whispers of hope. So first, as we listen closely to this passage, we hear cries of heartache. And the first reality of that is this passage... Uh, begins with uncertain times. Notice how the story starts in verse one. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, you may not think much of that phrase. That might not mean too much to you, but that statement is packed with information. If QR codes existed back then, there would be a QR code next to that verse. You're meant to scan that verse, and it's meant to take you to another page if you have your Bible, it's probably right next to where you're open right now, the book of Judges. And uh, we didn't do an overview video for the book of Judges, unfortunately. So all we need, though, is the last verse from the book of Judges. 
and it's printed there in your outline. Look at, look at the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So uh, in the time of the Judges means there's no king in Israel. And if you read that story, uh, with no king, it means that there's increasing corruption in the leadership of God's people. No king means political confusion and chaos. And notice, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so there's violence, there's abuse, there's immorality, it's widespread. Instead of following the Lord and being people of love and mercy and justice, everyone follows their own ways, indulges in their own desires, tells their own truth. The time of judges means there's political disorder, social unrest, and moral corruption. Notice also in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. A famine at any time is hard, but back then it was devastating. I mean, there's no refrigerators uh, to preserve as much food as possible. There's no grocery store or campus store to go to in a pinch. There's no tax relief coming out from the government. And so in addition to all these political and moral uncertainties, the people are facing economic hardships. We're only half of a verse in. And so in the midst of all of that, notice how uh, the story focuses in on one family. And they're fleeing the uncertainty that God's people face. It says in verse 1 that a man went with his family to sojourn in the land of Moab. Now that might not be a word that you use all that much, sojourn. What that means is to reside temporarily to reside temporarily. It's, it's actually what a lot of you guys are doing right now in college. You are sojourning on your campus because you're, you're more than visitors. I'm assuming that most of you can't park in the visitor spot. But on the flip side, you also know that your dorm room is not your home. You are sojourners. And so this, this family is, is moving away from Bethlehem, temporarily residing in a place called Moab, but they're not getting a meal plan or a parking pass. Moab, uh, for an ancient Israelite, was not a place you would want to be. Moab and Israel were not friends. They have a, a colored history of strife and conflict. And actually, in the book of Judges, we learn that uh, the Moabites oppressed Israel for 18 years. And so this family, uh, they're, a, they're vulnerable travelers. They're, they're refugees. For them to go to Moab would be like a, a family from Ukraine seeking refuge in Russia. This is severe instability. And so the book of Ruth introduces us to this reality, political disorder, social unrest, moral corruption, economic hardship, and severe instability. Can any of you relate to any of that? God's word acknowledges and addresses people who live in uncertain times. So that's verse one. This story also then moves into unbearable trials. The story continues, and look at what happens in verse two. So we, we learn the name of the father and husband, Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. 
But then in verse 3, tragedy strikes. Verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. In the midst of all of the uncertainty already occurring, Naomi is now left alone with her two boys, widowed in a foreign land. And did you notice the author doesn't tell us how or why Elimelech died? It's silent on the details. Uh, We don't know what caused his death, and instead, this passage just leaves us with unanswerable questions. What's God doing? We don't know, but isn't that often how tragedy feels? Unanswerable questions that we don't have a response for. Naomi and her sons, though, manage to keep going. You never move on from losing someone you love, but you can move forward, and that's what they do. Do you notice in verse 4, uh, Naomi's sons marry a couple local gals, Orpah and Ruth. Things seem to be uh, looking up. They're, they're there for 10 years, but then tragedy strikes again. Verse 5, both of Naomi's sons die. And again, we're given no cause, no explanation, more questions without answers, just the terrible impact of tragic loss. I want you to take a step back and think about the cruel irony of this. They are fleeing uncertainty to find refuge only to experience loss upon loss upon loss. Death has diminished this family, ripping Naomi's loved ones away. And this would be terrible in any context, but back then, uh, there was an additional grief to bear. Uh, Family lineage was everything back then. One pastor puts it like this, in Israel, there was no greater tragedy than for a family to cease to exist. Uh, Your purpose, your meaning, your legacy was wrapped up in your family line continuing. That's why you see uh, Naomi summarize her experience in verse 21. Look at what she says. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi has lost everything. She's only a shadow of who she once was. You can make out her shape, but she's lost her substance. And you see that even reflected in how the author removes her identity. Look at verse 5. Naomi is no longer called by name. Do you see what she's called? She is now the woman who was left without her two sons and her husband. She's only identified by what she's lost. And so often this is how suffering feels. It reduces you uh, to what you're struggling with. I remember having a similar declaration made over me several years ago. Kayla shared with you guys that in 2018, my wife and I lost our son, Eli. And in addition to the agony and pain of losing our son, there was an additional sorrow and confusion over who we now were as parents. At that point, he was our only child. And so what our parents without a child. 
I remember the question that really drilled this into my soul when, when an acquaintance of ours asked us, are you the ones who lost a child? Sometimes suffering feels like it reduces your identity to what you've lost. So let me ask you, do you feel like your struggles and suffering are your identity? Are you the one who's anxious? Are you the one who's depressed? Are you the one who's grieving? Are you the one who's afraid? Are you the one who's mistreated? Are you the one who's lonely? When unbearable trials come, heartache can sometimes feel like it defines who you are. And so what do we do when this happens? What do we do when our hearts ache? Now, you might be tempted to, to rush to find uh, answers to your lingering questions or, or to seek out quick fixes to the sorrow that you face. Maybe you prefer to try to ignore the storm and just focus on the silver lining. Or maybe you try to escape the pain and just pretend like you're fine. Well, this passage shows us that part of the path forward includes unrestrained tears. Notice this movement that happens in Naomi. Verse 6, we read that the famine has ended because Naomi heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she heads back home with her daughters-in-law. But in the middle of this road trip, she urges her daughters-in-law to go home. And her insistence on their return is filled with love and concern for their well-being. There's, there's no point in tagging along with her. And as they talk, notice what they do in verse 9. It says there at the end of verse 9, they lifted up their voices and wept. Then again, look at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept. I mean, here's the emotional culmination of what they've been through together. Not only have each of them lost their husbands and Naomi, her sons, now they're losing each other. And so they lift up their voices and they weep. As they face the peak of their pain, they don't downplay their distress they don't restrain their tears. They weep. I want to let you guys know that this expression, lifting up your voices and weeping, is by no means an outlier in Scripture. Your Bible is soaked in tears. Read story after story after story of believers who ache and sigh and worry and cry. Uh, the authors of Untangling Emotions uh, talk about this. It's a, it's a quote at the top of your outline. Listen to what they say. Uh, the basic logic of the Bible is this. If you care about others and the kingdom and the mission of God in this world, you will be and you should be full of sorrow when you or those you love are injured, suffer loss, or die. In other words, faith does not erase sorrow. 
It engages and expresses heartache with God and others. And we see this in none other than Jesus himself. Do you know how the Bible summarizes Jesus' prayer life? It's very similar to what we just read in Ruth. It's there in your outline. Look at Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So here's what the book of Ruth and the scriptures are urging you to do. Recognize the heartache in your life and the world around you. Recognize the heartache in your life and the world around you. Uncertain times and unbearable trials are not meant to be ignored or polished over. They're meant to be seen and wept over. It's okay to be sad about sad things. Some of the most faithful people look at the world through tears. Jesus himself did that. So don't silence the cries. And I know here at the beginning of the weekend, this doesn't feel like a fun way to start off a whole conference. Uh, We want to be happy. We want to be excited. We want to have a good time. And we will. But listen to what scripture is urging you to do when you face heartache. Do not restrain your tears. Engage and express the heartache that you face. We want happiness, but Jesus offers you something so much greater than happiness. He offers you hope. And the hope that he offers is gritty, it's messy, and it will sustain you through sorrow and suffering. And this hope that Jesus offers does not come by sidestepping sorrow. This hope rises through sorrow. So give voice to your own heartache and give ear to the heartache of others. So as we hear the cries of heartache in in this story and in ours, listen closely because that's not how this story ends. You could see it uh, in how this whole chapter ends. You notice in verse 22, they come to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So think about that. The story starts with famine. Chapter one ends uh, with this promise of provision. In other words, the story's not over. But we don't have to keep reading or wait until tomorrow morning to see the hope. If we glimpse back through the chapter, you can start to hear whispers of hope. And so the first whisper of hope that we see is in God's patience. Notice how Naomi is wrestling with the Lord. You probably caught her wrestling. As she struggles with God in this passage, her faith is this mingling of trust and groaning. You you see this mingling with trust and groaning, first in the way that she talks with her daughters-in-law. Do you notice that in verse 8? Notice what she says, how she uh, makes a statement of trust Recognizing God's goodness. May the Lord deal kindly with you. She's acknowledging God's goodness. She wants God to be kind to her daughters-in-law. But look at how she follows that up with groaning in verse 13. 
She says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she's uh, making a statement of trust in God's goodness, but she's also groaning because she feels hurt by God's actions. Do you see that mingling? And did you notice the mingling that happens when she gets home? Verse 19, she gets home and there's this welcoming party. Verse 19, it says that the whole town was stirred because of them. People are pumped, Naomi's home. But like a soldier returning from war, Naomi leaves behind her a trail of tragedy. And did you see how she responds? Talk about an awkward response. Verse 20, she changes her name tag. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. See, Naomi means pleasant. What a pleasant name. But her life has been anything but pleasant recently. Mara means bitter. Do you feel the groaning in her soul? Uh, But along with that, there is a statement of trust if you look closely. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She's not shying away from the hard truth. God is in control in this calamity. And so she's uh, groaning from the severity as she's recognizing God's sovereignty. And, And here's what is so important to notice. As Naomi's faith twists and turns, it mingles in trust and groaning, God patiently brings her home. Why was she going back to Bethlehem? Look at verse six. The Lord had visited his people. If Naomi wanted nothing to do with God, or if she thought that God wanted nothing to do with her, she would have stayed in Moab or moved further away. And yet this whole story, this first chapter, takes place on the way home. And did you notice who is bringing her home? She says, the Lord has brought me back. Naomi didn't have her act together yet. She's still struggling with God's promises and his plan. Her questions weren't answered. Her sorrows hadn't settled. Her wrestling hadn't resolved. Yet the Lord brought her back. Even as we wrestle, the Lord welcomes us home. I saw a picture of uh, this patient welcoming a number of years ago. It was a particularly difficult time in my life, and at that point, I really hated the question, how are you? Because you guys know that's not really a question in our culture. It is a formulaic exchange of words. There are two right words that you respond with when someone asks, how are you? Good, you? But my faith was mingling mostly in groaning, and so I I hated that question because I wasn't good, and so it felt dishonest. But I also knew that walking around, people weren't actually asking an honest question for me to dive into all my heartache, and so I, I just hated that question. 
And I remember uh, one day that someone asked me that question, but they meant it, and they wanted to hear the answer. I'm sitting in a coffee shop, and, and I see a friend of mine, and it's one of those moments where, like, you hope they don't see you. <laughs> it's kind of like hiding, and he's walking out, and he turns his head, and he sees me. He stops, turns around, and he walks up to me. And he asks me that terrible question, hey, man, how are you? Now, I was ready to give him the routine answer, good you, hoping that we would just, you know, exchange these polite pleasantries and move on with our day. But he didn't even give me a chance to answer that first question because he asked another question. Do you mind if I sit down? Now, here's the thing about my friend. He knew what I was going through. And so he knew that that answer was going to take a lot of time. But whatever was next on his agenda didn't matter to him. And he also knew that that answer was going to be really messy. But he wasn't afraid of the honesty. And what he did next communicated his overwhelming patience. He sat down. He sat down and he listened. This is just a glimpse of our God, of how hope begins to whisper. When you struggle, when you're anxious, when you are afraid because of uncertain circumstances, when you wrestle with God's promises, when you're bringing honest answers, when your faith is mingled with trust and groaning, how does he respond? God sits down. He asks, how are you? And he listens. God is patient with people who are in pain. That's one of the first ways that God whispers hope in the midst of heartache. He's patient. But the second way we see whispers of hope is through God's people. Go back to this exchange uh, between Naomi and Ruth. Uh, Naomi's pleading with her daughters-in-law to go home, and Orpah agrees, and that's the last we ever hear of Orpah. <laughs> but what does Ruth do? Look at verse 14. It says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Bye-bye, Orpah. <laughs> but Ruth clung to her. Then look at verse 16. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you. She refuses to go home. Then again in verse 16, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She's pledging herself to Naomi. And then in verse 17, where you die, I will die. She's saying, to my death, I'm committing myself to you. And then in verse 18, it prevails upon Naomi. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, tomorrow morning, we're going to hear more about the faith of Ruth, but I want you to, to think about this from Naomi's perspective. Naomi was left alone. Her identity had been removed. She's ready for this long trip home, grieving all by herself. But Ruth goes with her. Now, remember, Ruth is from Moab. For a Jewish audience who would have been the first readers of this text, uh, she would not have been the hero to expect in this story. 
She's the outsider. She's the rival. She's the enemy. And yet she's the one who displays loyalty and compassion. This is another way that God whispers hope to us in heartache. Through people. And sometimes it's from where you would least expect it. I experienced a a similar loyalty during my own heartache when my wife and I lost our son, Eli. Uh, My nephew, Jansen, was only eight when he lost his cousin. And when his parents started talking to him about Eli's funeral, it wasn't even a question for Jansen. I think they were trying to kind of give him a way out, but he interrupts them as they're talking about it and tells them, I'm going. They reminded him that his friend had a birthday party that day. I mean, think about how big a birthday party is for an eight-year-old. But Jansen insisted. He was determined to stay close to us. He said, no, no. I'm going to Eli's service. My friend will have other birthday parties. His Ruth-like loyalty to us and our son was fierce. And he came to Eli's funeral, a a terrible and dark thing to experience as an eight-year-old. But he didn't just attend the funeral. Jansen felt the weight of our sorrow. As Eli's funeral ended, my wife and I are sitting there falling apart, weeping, cold, shaking under the misery of grief and loss. We're sitting in front of our son's casket, and family and friends are coming by, giving us their condolences and their embraces, and it's all a blur of what people said and who we hugged, but I'll never forget seeing Jansen walking up to us weeping. He didn't say a word because he didn't have to. His tears and his presence and his embrace said enough. His fierce loyalty and his open display of grief proclaimed his love for us and the cousin he never got to meet. You would never expect an eight-year-old to be someone who could offer hope in the midst of terrible tragedy. But that's exactly what happened. His determined compassion whispered hope into our souls. And this is one of the ways that God works. He whispers hope through his people. So I want to encourage those of you tonight who are not hurting right now. Look at Ruth's example. Be this kind of friend for someone else. Listen to the heartache of others. Those who are struggling around you, they don't need your advice. They need your presence. They don't need you to fix them. They need you to join them. Determine to walk with them through the darkness. Cling to those who need comfort. And for those of you who might resonate more with Naomi tonight, keep a lookout for the Ruths in your life. 
They won't be able to take away your pain, but like someone holding your hand through surgery, they can offer you solidarity. Suffering is lonely, and it can be hard to find people. It can be scary to entrust your pain to others, and sometimes it does backfire. But there are Ruths out there. Some of them are sitting next to you or are here in this room. God whispers hope to us through his people. And the final whisper of hope in this passage is God's presence. Look again at Naomi's return home. Verse 6 the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, this, this visitation in verse 6 isn't just a mere drop-in. This isn't divine DoorDash. <laughs> in the original language, this means to intervene, to attend to. In other words, God doesn't just drive by and drop something off. He showed up. He stepped in to take care of those who were hurting. And did you notice that his visit was defined by his relationship? Verse 6, he visited his people. Now, this is all the more surprising if you remember the context of judges and what was going on. His people wanted nothing to do with him, and yet he visits them to attend to him because they belonged to him. And for Naomi, even in the midst of her wrestling, this is good news God was not staying far off. He was coming close. And now this is striking. Think about how she calls, she calls God the Almighty, the King, the Most High. And why would the Almighty King condescend in such a way like this? Why would a king waste time serving his subjects? Why would a king waste time serving his subjects. Now, this, this very question confronted a different uh, royalty, a different throne, the Queen of England. 56 years ago on this day, October 21st, 1966, terrible disaster struck a community in Wales. A coal mine collapsed in the village of Aberfan, killing 28 adults and 116 children. Images of the disaster and, and their grief circled the, gro the globe. The, the cries of heartache rang out around the world through the news. Headlines renamed the village No Hope Valley. But despite the heartache and the public outcry, their queen refused to visit. Her advisors pleaded with her to go, but no one could persuade her. Newspapers criticized her indifference. They, they, they questioned her care. And, and the question resounded throughout the kingdom, were the, will the crown come close to calamity? Will the crown come close to calamity? Now, she eventually gave in to the pressure, visiting over a week after the disaster. But, but Queen Elizabeth said that hesitating to visit No Hope Valley was her biggest regret. And I imagine that that question is what stirs in your soul when you suffer. Will the crown come close in calamity? How much do I need to persuade God to care? 
Well, I want you to listen closely because the Bible moves beyond a whisper with this one. Scripture's emphatic announcement. The storyline of the entire Bible, the hinge point of all of history, is that God comes close. God's visit here in the book of Ruth is just a shadow of what he would do through Jesus. Through Jesus, God came close. He came and he dwelt among us. And he didn't just come to be with us, he came to be like us. So uh, he doesn't only see your pain, he knows your pain. And he took on all the sin and suffering of this world, forever guaranteeing that those who put their hope in Christ belong to God. All who are in Christ are his people. And his heart beats in tandem with yours. God's heart aches in rhythm with yours. In Jesus, the crown has come close. And through his spirit, the crown is close right now. And so let me ask you, are you the one who's anxious? He's close. Are you the one who's depressed? He's close. Are you the one who's grieving? He's close. Are you the one who's afraid? He's close. Are you the one who's mistreated? He's close. Are you the one who's lonely? He's close. God is not indifferent to your despair. He does not need to be pressured to care about your cries. He does not need his arm twisted to be concerned about your sorrows. He is not indifferent to your despair. He doesn't scroll past your pain. God has come close. And even when you're wrestling with his purposes, even when you're struggling with his plan, even when you're hurt by his promises, he's close. He hears your cries, he sees your tears, and he feels your pain. And so when your cries of heartache ring out, listen to the one who whispers to your soul, I'm here. So uh, this weekend may be an invitation to be like Naomi. Come home. You don't need to have your act together. Your questions answered. Your struggles resolved. Draw near to the one who's drawn near to you. And if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, if you're still figuring out what this all means, this invitation is being extended to you. Christ offers you the only hope that can withstand any heartache. Come to the one who's come close to you. He waits for you with patience. He provides you with his people, and he gives you his presence, a hope that will outlast every heartache. Why don't we take a moment to pray together? 
And as I do, I'm gonna leave some uh, room, just a few moments for silence for you guys to, to process, to reflect, and to pray. So I'll start praying, leave some room, and then I'll close this in prayer. Almighty God, help us now as we process and reflect on what we've just heard. Lord, some of our hearts are aching right now, like Naomi. Are you listening? Be patient with us. Give us compassionate people to cling to us. Will you come close? Lord, some of us want to be like Ruth, clinging to those who need comfort. Will you help us? Give us your compassion. Help us to walk with others. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you provide even when we struggle to see it. When our hearts cry out, would you whisper to our souls the hope we can have in Jesus? Amen.